Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam Podcast. I am your host, Rustin, and we're joined by our second and probably favorite host, Ali Karju Ravari. Hi, everyone. Today, we're here with Najam Hader, Professor of Religion at Barnard College of Columbia University. It's a pleasure to have you, Najam. Thanks. It's great to be here. And we're talking about his recent book, The Rebel and the Imam in Early Islam. That is published by Cambridge University Press, and it just came out in 2019. Your book is about what you think the rules of writing history in the Islamic period are, yes? Yeah, I should begin by saying that I'm wrong. Uh, and I feel very strongly that I'm wrong. But what this book is about is trying to figure out what those rules are and should be. And the book, I feel, is the first attempt at articulating what those rules are. So all first attempts are flawed. So I just want to begin a debate. And I think that's really the purpose of the book. Okay, so for our listeners who are maybe not necessarily familiar with historiography or history produced in this particular time period... Could you just talk about what is the history of history in the Islamic period? What does the historical tradition look like? We have to think about how we today conceive of Islamic history. And the way we conceive of it today is we divide it into a few genres. We talk about chronicles, which are histories that are divided by years. We talk about biographies, which are self-evident. They're just the histories of individual people. And then something called prosopographies or tabakat, which are groups of biographies that are taken together. And these are seen as the three dominant genres of historical writing. Now, in the early Islamic period, the unit of historical writing is something called a khabar. And a khabar is just an isolated atomistic report. So sometimes it has a chain of transmission. You know, I heard from my father who heard from his friend, who heard from his father, whose uncle knew someone who saw something. And then that will be followed by a report. So some of these sources have these atomistic reports Others are combinations, so they take these reports together and make a broader narrative. So we have a whole range of sources, beginning around the 3rd century, which is the ninth century in the Common Era. And these sources take different forms, one of these three forms, and they present information. For a long, long time, we thought that these sources actually could be traced with great confidence back to the earliest period in Islam. But in recent years, especially in the last 30 years, there's come to be a controversy as to whether these sources actually go back to the early period or whether they were constructed later as sort of back understandings of what happened early on. So those are the big debates that are present in the field. It's the nature of these sources. Are they authentic, quote unquote? Do they relate real information? And so that's really what the field looks like right now. It's this contentious relationship between people who believe that these sources are actual preservations of what happened in the past and others who feel like they are constructions from a later period. So for me, this seems like, well, this is a normal sort of question in history, at least like in terms of contemporary historiography. They try to reconstruct what happened based on various reliable sources that they have, whether that's historiography of the 21st century or... Am I wrong to assume that? And if that's not the case, then if we're not judging history by this question of veracity or authenticity, then what are we judging it by? Well, I should start by saying you are wrong. Well, like I said, that, that happens a lot. And I should follow that up by saying that it's not your fault. And part of the reason is that our understanding of history is a 19th century European understanding of history. That's what we apply today. 
it's not just about Europe and the Middle East, even in other areas. Like if you look at South Asian historical writing into the 19th century, these questions that you bring up, a reconstruction exactly of what happened in the past, it was never the dominant mode of historical writing. So what I would argue is that when we look at early Islam, the connection we should look for is probably with what came before. So we should look at how the late antique world and the classical Roman world uh, examined historical writing. And then we can make a stronger argument that early Islam was probably a continuity with and following the late antique world as opposed to adhering to a standard of historical writing that is specific to Europe after the 19th century. So you're an Orientalist, which is perfectly fine. Um, but I would it's like very to, rude. I would like to to go beyond that a little bit. When you talk about late antique sources, and now you're talking about early Islam, so what are the sources that you're thinking about? Well, as not a scholar of the late antique world, part of what I've been doing over the last few years is reading secondary source material on the late antique world. And what you find is that there are two basic modes of historical writing in late antiquity. And this is fairly standard stuff for historians of the late antique and classical world. And there's one mode that we know of, which does try in some way to reconstruct what happened in the past. And some of these people are well-known. Herodotus, for example, works in that mode. Thucydides works in that mode. But there are others, and the dominant mode of historical writing in late antiquity follows a different paradigm altogether. And some people have called it rhetoricized historical writing. And what that means is that it takes a narrative that is known and it transforms and plays with it to create meaning. One of the clearest examples is a late antique historian named Erosius. Now, Erosius writes all about the fall of the Roman Empire. And he takes this narrative that is in existence at his time, which claims that Christianity brought down the Roman Empire. And he takes that exact sequence of events and transforms them and makes an argument that actually Christianity expanded the length of the Roman Empire. It would have fallen much earlier. So what he's doing is he's taking a known narrative and he's transforming its meaning. And I would argue that what early Islamic historians are doing is a very similar thing. They're taking well-known narratives, and that raises the question of audience, but they are transforming them and using them to make competing arguments about what is meaningful and significant. Now, in the late antique world, this is generally called myth. I would rather use myth than anything else in my own work, but I think myth carries with it certain connotations which wouldn't go over well in early Islam. But what I would argue is that all of these early Islamic historians are taking stories with significance that are known and using them as skeletons and then transforming them, like clothing them in particular ways to make competing arguments. And I think examining the construction of history in that way would make a lot more sense to historians of the early period than to go up to them and say, but what really happened? Because I think that they're more interested in what the importance of something was or what the significance was than in the actual details. In this way, there are some similarities with how people are conducting history today. It obviously is tied into the contemporary political and cultural climate in which people are writing to make particular points. So, if it isn't veracity, if it is not authenticity, what other things should we look at in history writing? I think we should look at, and this is borrowing from scholars who work in South Asia, I think we need to look at the texture of the historical material. And what I mean by that is that when we look at a historical source, what we should ask is, 
what is its broader take or understanding of an event? Because that's what the purpose of the composition seems to be. You can take a very simple narrative. A person was born here, moved here, was arrested, was released, was imprisoned again, and died. And what you'll find is that narrative, that biographical story, is consistent amongst every historical work that you'll find. It is the skeleton of the narrative. It is the known story. If any of those sequences or sequential pieces is missing, it's not recognizably the same story. But then the interactions that are placed within that skeleton, so the conversations that people have, the encounters, the face-to-face, the letters, all of these things are rhetorical, they're elaborated. And it's that elaboration where the creativeness of the historian comes into play. And it's not that the historian is misleading people. The historian is, with the complicity of an audience, creating an understanding of why this is important. And so the argument is in the elaboration, the argument that the historian is making. And that's a very different discipline than what we assume history is. But I think it's closer to the period and the type of of writing that these people were doing. So I have two questions, but let's start with the easier one, just so that we get into the book itself. So who is the rebel and who is the imam? That book title was, this is embarrassing. Um, (laughs) I, um, I agreed to write a book like this 11 years ago. And so I got a contract to write this book. And then the book became a very different book. So then I went back to the publisher with the whole book and it was like three editors removed from who had given me the contract. And I said, that's not really what the book is about. Um, and they were like, is, are there rebels in there? I was like, yes. Are there imams? Yes. They're like, okay, we'll keep the title. Um, and so the subtitle of it is Explorations in Muslim Historiography. And that's really what the book is about. And the first part I think the publisher just wants to sell books. I mean, it's a very, very enticing title. That's for sure. It rhymes just like old Arabic book titles. Well, the reason I was asking was because, I mean, it, what you're saying, I think one of the easiest popular examples of it is the story of Hussein and Mukhtar after. Because it's a place where people clearly can see how a story is constantly being reinterpreted to sort of be applied to a particular situation. Well, we, we can talk about Hussein because Hussein is complicated, um, which is an understatement. Um, but the three uh, case studies are rebels or imams. So the first case study is Mukhtar, who is a rebel. Second case study is Musa Qazim, who is a seventh, twelver imam. And the third case study is Yahya ibn Abdullah, who is a Zaydi imam, who they really want to be a rebel, but it becomes problematic. So all three of these sort of fit somewhere in the range of rebel and imam. Interesting. So based on that, since we're dealing, and I mean, I, I'm totally down with your project. I, I love this stuff, even though I work on a much later period. But my question here is that, is veracity the right word, especially if they have a different understandings of what veracity is or what truth is, where truth is located? And also time. How does time come into this? Because this is history, right? So how does our understanding of the Muslim past sometimes superimpose our own understanding of time, which might be different. I've been thinking about that question a lot, about how time shapes our understandings of the past. I'll begin with the first question, though. I don't think veracity is the right term. I I don't use it. I think that it makes no sense. I would say 
I'm borrowing from Stephen Colbert that truthiness is what we're talking about here as opposed to truth. And the example I always give, and people have gotten sick of the example by now, is that the way that I propose to my wife, which is I propose to her, and in the traditional Pakistani sense, she said nothing. And silence means yes, and that's understood in our culture. And I can tell that story, and you might understand what I'm saying. If I go to Montana, and they ask me how I met my wife, and I say, I proposed to her, and she said nothing, and now we're married, that's going to feel coercive, right? (laughs) So the question is, if I were to say to that person in Montana, I proposed to my wife, and she agreed, she said yes, is that not more truthful than me just presenting the exact thing that happened? So I would argue that for these writers, the presentation of truthfulness was much more important than the preservation of an exact step-by-step rendering of what happened in the past. So, I mean, veracity is clearly not the right word to use there. Now, when it comes to time, I mean, the way I've been thinking about time, I mean, you know, my second book was on memory and how communities remember their past and reimagine their past. So memory and time, I think, are, are very meaningful. And I think Time as a concept is under-theorized in our field. So you should write that book, by the way. (laughs) But the way I think it manifests itself, especially in universal histories, and by that I mean histories that begin from Adam and go to today for the writer, I think you see within it the differences between how different periods are conveyed and depicted demonstrates sort of varying understandings of what the past is. Right. So the key example here is Tabari. When Tabari is doing a biblical history, then Tabari, who is a very important you know, early historian, Tabari is telling a history of, of biblical prophets. And you read it and it feels like you're reading a particular unreading of the past. Then you read his Sasanian history and it's completely different. It's like epic. It's mythical almost in the more contemporary sense of it. Then you get to Muhammad and the first four caliphs and that book which is all part of the same book, feels like a type of salvation history. People have called it that. And then you get to his Abbasids and Umayyads in, in that section, and that's the rise and fall of a family. It's very Game of Thrones. And then you get to his contemporary stuff right before he died. And that stuff is crazy. It's completely nothing like what came before it. And so obviously his understanding of the recent past and how to convey it and remember it is quite different from his understanding of the distant past. And I think this is where time can complicate our understandings. Now, in the book, what I try to do is just lay out some of the broader issues, because I think that before we can theorize about genres and within genres about different approaches to the past, we need to have some understanding of the broader picture. And the problem is that no one has even done that broader work. So I'm hoping that the book at least begins the conversation of doing that broader work so that the questions that you asked can begin to be engage in a more serious way. I'm incredibly fascinated by what you just said about how he switches style based on the topic. And especially now thinking about this sort of what is a universal history as a history of all histories. Do particular stories or do particular histories have their own rules? I would think that they do. And I think that we don't know what those rules are. I mean, you know, my favorite example of this is somebody, I'm basing this off something I read and I can't remember who. So whoever you are, I'm citing you. Um, (laughs) I've read about this idea that when we read, for example, Abraham Lincoln, vampire killer, you know what part of it is a rendering of the past and you know what part of it is not. 
And you know it instinctively. And we know it because it emerges in our contemporary world and we know what the rules are. And if somebody were to come back 300 years from now and pick up that book, would they know that it's a novel? Will they be able to separate out the elements that are meant to be depictions of the past from what is not? I mean, we instinctively know. We, this is what I mean when I say texture. We know the texture of the text. We can't do that for 100 years ago. Imagine how hard it is to do that for a thousand years ago. I mean, that society is so far removed that the task of this book almost feels overwhelming to me because what I'm saying is that we need to do the best we can to try to reconstruct that world and place ourselves as historians in that world to know what the rules are, to know what the texture was for them. And I just think even if we can't do it, it's worth trying to do because it at least it's more responsive and authentic to the project of what these people were doing, as opposed to imposing a 19th century European understanding of what we think they should have been doing onto them. It just doesn't make sense. It would be different if we had early historians who theorized their own work, but we don't. By the time we get to the Mamluk period, we do have people talking about what they're doing. But in the early, early period, we have no one who actually takes some time and says, well, let me tell you about what is this project that I'm doing? No one does that. So that brings up a really interesting quandary, right? So if nobody's doing that, at least the writers themselves, then how are you able to make this connection to figure out what they're writing in? I mean, from what I understand, there's, there's some introductions or muqaddamas, right? So like that obviously doesn't contain a theory of history, but like where do you mind to find these values or these elements that would be valuable to the writer? Well, this goes back to your first question where I admitted that I'm wrong. <laughs> right? So I did not set myself up at all. I completely conceded all points right there. I think it's really difficult, but I think it's a project worth doing. So what I would say and how I justify it to myself and my students is I'll say that if I have to make a choice, I mean, if I have nothing to, to go on from the period itself and I have to choose which is more likely a 19th century European reading or the late antique reading. And I think that at every moment I would say the late antique reading. So that is not to say that they have the exact same way of thinking about the past. But it's more likely to be more resonant with what the early historians were doing in the Islamic period. What I mean is that the late antique would be more likely to be resonant. Those of us who study early Islam know that we are studying a sliver of a tradition. So all it takes, as one of my old advisors used to say, my entire career could be gone if somebody's house has a manuscript in the top shelf somewhere that we don't know about. Because our textual corpus is so limited that one or two discoveries can alter things significantly. So we do the best that we can, but we should all be aware that it's all built on sand. So it doesn't really answer your question, but I would say that I feel more confident in drawing on the late antique than on the modern in trying to understand what this project is. And then I just think that we have to be more creative in trying to figure out what these rules were and what this project was. Um, and the first person to do it is not the person who's going to figure it out, right? Um, but maybe the questions can begin to be asked. And, and that's really what I'm interested in in the book. What is it about the study of early Islam that people are hesitant to consider these questions that are more welcome in other fields? In early Islam, you still get 
people who are willing to sort of fight tooth and nail that you can prove 100% whether or not something happened or did not happen or something like that. This takes me back to my time as a grad student. I did my master's at Oxford and I studied with Chase Robinson, who's a fairly well-known historian. That's an understatement. He'll probably be sitting there going, fairly well-known? But I did physics as an undergrad. So I was not in the field at all. One of the first books I had to read as a master's student was Cook and Krona's Hagarism, which is a book which attacked the very foundations of Islamic historical writing. And drawing on other scholars, the argument that it made was that we make assumptions about these sources that they contain real information, but they are hundreds of years, in some cases, removed from the events they purport to describe. So Hagarism was a challenge really issued by these two, saying that, are we sure that these sources are correct? And why are they any more valid than other contemporaneous sources? What they meant by that was, if we want to study early Islam in the time of Muhammad, why shouldn't we just use sources that were composed at that time, even if they were composed by non-Muslims? And so the book was a thought project. What they tried to do was to say, if we just use contemporary sources to Muhammad, what will that world look like? And they came up with what amounted to a very incendiary view of early Islam. And they wrote it in a language that I think was provocative. So I read that book and it was jarring to me very much. There was almost a crisis I went into off of that book. So then I had to try to figure out what I was going to do with it. Like, how was I going to deal with this? And really my academic career as a master's student was obsessed with this idea. What do we do with the sources? Can we prove the sources are correct? And I was intent. I was going to prove that the sources were authentic. And I did it. And then I left. And I went and taught eighth grade for a year. And then I came back. And I decided that I was going to study with Michael Cook. Because I wanted to convince that guy that the sources were usable and everything. And so he accepted me into the program. And I started thinking about these sorts of issues. And I never quite got to the point where I could come up with an answer that I wanted. So I went in other directions. I've only recently come back. But what Cook and Krona's book did is it caused a crisis within the field. And for the last 30 years, maybe even more than that, the central issue in early Islam has been, so are they right? Are the sources fake? Or are the sources usable and correct? Where should the burden of proof be? Should it be on the side of those who say that, We have to assume that this text is veracious unless otherwise proven, or do we assume that it's not and we have to prove it in every case? And I think what you find in the field itself is that it's caught in this insular argument about veracity. And now I can make strong arguments in both directions if I wanted to. And what you'll find in most works of early Islam is that the scholar will begin by saying, sources are problematic. And then they will explain why they are. And then after they've done this for 10 pages, we'll ignore the issue and do whatever they want anyway. I mean, I think this debate is real because people have to take a position on it, but they never really engaged that debate. But that becomes almost like a rite of passage for every book. What am I saying about the authenticity of the source material? So people do this without actually talking about anything else. I think we're just, the field is stuck in an echo chamber where it's just stuck on this question. And Cook and Krona have sort of locked us into that vault and closed the door. And I think we just need to get out. So my answer to that is to say that's the wrong question. 
And so to go in a completely different direction altogether. I think personally that that book was useful. I thought that book made us question things. It might not have been diplomatically written, but I think in the long run, it was better for the field than it having not been written. Building on that, just the theoretical question, we've talked about time and even in your response right now, what they said was that there's this distance of time mm-hmm. and that we should look at things from that time period, but time is always with space and space is also a distance. Yes. And when you also have issues of space, you also have issues of what you talked about earlier with Tabari, that when you're writing this universal history, you're dealing with different stories, different types of stories that come from different spaces. Those spaces and times have their own rules. They have their own rhythms. They have their own approaches, right? So in a sense, the absence of anything from that center then means even if something is from the same time period, it's coming from this removal of distance, right? So again, getting back to this question of then how do we approach that this is all representation? This cuts to a few things that I'm interested in and their cop-outs. Going for a second back to Hagarism, I think the problem with that book, and there's lots of problems with that book, but one of the problems with that book is that just because something is contemporary to events doesn't mean it's reliable, quote-unquote, in any way. That book tells the story of the rise of Islam from the perspective of a traumatized, distant community that thought the world was ending. So I don't know how useful that is, but as a thought experiment, I think it was useful. I stay as far away from Muhammad and the early caliphate as I possibly can, because I don't know what to do with that, with that world. Because I think that our sources are worked over in very thick ways. I think that that history has a weight that the community has given it that is far heavier than anything else. And I think that it's just really hard to delve in there. So I even avoid Hussein as much as I can. So I start thinking about my material beginning sort of at the start of the second century, because I think the first century is very hard. So I have no answers for that first century and representation and textual distance and time. I mean, as it's a general uh, motif of this conversation we're having is I concede all points but they're hard. I mean, that's the thing. This is hard. I think that it's something that we need to start thinking about, but I don't know how to go about doing it. And it's one of those things that I actually think about this a lot with my graduate students. I was with a colleague a few months ago and he and I were sitting in a seminar and the person who presented was working on early Islam. And afterwards, this colleague who works in 18th century, 19th century Middle East, He said, I would never work in early Islam. He said, it sounds terrifying and so hard and you have no sources. And what I said to him was that the beauty of working in early Islam in that period is that the challenge is creativity. You have to be creative. You don't have your normal ways of doing things. So it forces you to be creative and method. Find new ways of figuring information out. And what that means is on a case-by-case basis, you have to come up with a way of doing it. And that's where the challenge rests. And I think that I don't know how to do early Islam. I don't know how to do the prophet's biography. I really don't know how to do it. I'm not sure how to go about it. I'm not sure how to delve into it. I'm not sure how to crack it open. I'm not sure about about almost anything about it. But I think that that's the job of someone else to come along and figure out what the right way of doing this would be. So that's my way of saying, won't you write that book too, Ali? Oh <laughs> Well, now that we know your hesitancy for the first century, you mentioned that you have three case studies in your book. 
could you just do a deep dive of one of the rebels or the imams that you cover in the book and then also give the listeners a chance to kind of see your thought process in that book? Okay, so Ali is whispering over there, Musa Qazim, but <laughs> Musa Qazim is uh, for all transparency. Yeah. But uh, he just wants to get me in trouble with the 12 or Shia community throughout the world. Okay, working on, on Musa Qazim, what I would say is the way I begin is I say, well, what is the core structure? I call it the core structure. It's the core narrative. What is the thing that stays the same, the story that stays the same? Again, in late antiquity, they would call it the myth. What's the myth? The myth not meaning fictional, but myth as in meaning a story with meaning, significance. So the story of Musa Qazim is fairly straightforward. He's born in Medina. He's very rich. He's known for being incredibly generous. He's arrested one time by the caliph, then released. He's arrested a second time. This time he's sent to Basra, where he is put in prison, where he stays for a while. Then he's transported to Baghdad, and eventually he dies. That is what I would say the core structure is. And so I identify that in the beginning. I say, this is common. And then I look at it through every source I can find. And the differentiation I do in that chapter is between the 12 Rashis and everyone else. And I'll tell you why in a second. So when I look at everyone else, I notice that essentially he is being portrayed by historians who become Sunnis as a scholar, like a pious scholar, but very clearly he's brought down to the level of other scholars. So all the flesh that goes on to the core narrative involves little anecdotes and vignettes and conversations that feed into this notion of Musa Qazim as generous, as pious, as knowledgeable, but on the same level as every other scholar. So the purpose of this is fairly transparent to me, which is they're taking Musa Qazim and they're arguing against his imamness. And they're very much arguing for his scholarness. So they're not putting him down as not being a good person, but they're just trying to place him in a particular category that is meaningful for them. And you find this in all the sources, most particularly in Khatib al-Baghdadi, where there's a lot of overlap with 12 or she sources, but he turns the conversation in ways to just make Musa Qazim seem like a normal scholar. Now, the 12 or she sources do something completely different with him. Again, the biography is the same, the structure is the same. And what you find is that the first depiction we have is from a scholar who's writing right after the disappearance of the 12th Imam which was a very traumatic experience for the 12 Rishi. They believe the 12th Imam is the Mandi and he's going to come back at the end of time and he's a savior figure. And his disappearance was very traumatic to the community overall because they didn't know what was going on. And in that period, we know that this community that became 12 Rishi, there was a lot of defections. People were leaving left and right. So the first biography we get is from Kuleni and Kuleni writing just a generation removed from the disappearance of the Imam makes it about loyalty. It makes it about staying true to the imam. It makes it about not questioning the imam. So we get stories, for example, and these are the vignettes, the flesh. We get stories like, in one case, the imam tells one of his followers, as he's being arrested the first time, meet me here on this date, a year from now. And so then he's arrested. And then as the day approaches, the companion begins to doubt whether the imam will show up. But then when the imam does show up, He's astonished. And the imam doesn't just say, see, I told you so. He says, your faith itself was in question here. So the story becomes one of believing in the imam. And you see this throughout. So most of Kuleini's accounts, his, 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 his stories are about this. They're about loyalty, about remaining true. 
the imam is not politically active. He's not a rebel for Guleni, but he is a figure who knows. There's lots of miracles ascribed to him in Guleni. But by the time you get a generation removed to Ibn Babawe, who's writing at a time where the Shia are newly empowered because a Shi'i dynasty is now ruling the Buyids, the imam is unrecognizable. It's the same exact story. But in this case, the imam is confrontational to the caliph. He never backs down. At one point, he tricks the imam. I think he kills the caliph's dog at one point. So he does very confrontational things and he exhibits a fearlessness. But that fearlessness obviously is reflecting the community's newly empowered position. And so as you go through these 12 or she depictions, you see that the core narrative stays the same, but the embellishments, the vignettes change. And the change makes it so that this view of the imam has a significance for the community that's receiving it. And that's what I think the scholars are doing. They're not making claims that the imam really did X or Y. They're saying that this is the importance of the imam. And that's reflected in the stories that are told about him that then are placed within this core structure. And so I think for me, the power of that case study is that it gets to really the second most important point in the whole book after this writing of history stuff. And that is that the field treats Shi historiography as being bad, like hagiography, almost not usable, and treats Sunni historical writing as bad history. So that's your two choices. You're either bad history if you're a Sunni historian, or you are not history if you're a Shi historian. But if you take a large enough view, if you go above this and think about the rules themselves, you find that they're both doing the exact same thing. So that distinction between Sunni and Shi disappears once you think about the genre of historical writing more broadly. And I think that is incredibly valuable for us to think about, which is that we make these distinctions both between genre and between communal histories attached to Sunnis and Shis and Zaydis and and whoever you want. Um, And I think those are false and they fall away once you start thinking about what the broader epistemology of history. And I think just to tie this into that earlier theoretical point that you were making, this also helps deal with contemporary conversations where a lot of reformists or particular strands of history writing today tend to take the earliest rendition of a story as being somehow authentic. And then all the embellishments are the later ones. What you're showing is that actually each of these is dealing with the concerns of a community, even if it's the earlier one, right? That is also has all of these historiographical flourishes. And going one step further, the sources that we are actually using are building on stuff that came before it that might not survive in written form. And that would have its own perspectives. I mean, this is almost archaeological. You have layer after layer after layer. And the way the reuse of the story is happening, in some cases, becomes transparent to us after the third century. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist prior to the third century. There's all kinds of complications here. Najam, thank you so much for joining us today. A really fascinating and very important discussion that I'm really happy to share with all of our listeners. I truly enjoy telling you you were wrong multiple I mean, times. I, I, I wouldn't say that I like hearing that, but... You can call me anytime I'll tell okay. you you're wrong. <laughs> Wait, can I just be part of this? I'm also wrong and right at the same time. <laughs> for our listeners, once again, that was Najam Heder. He is the professor of religion at Barnard College of Columbia University. And his book is The Rebel and the Imam in Early Islam. And that's Cambridge University Press. And that came out in 2019. If you are intrigued or interested in any 
points to the conversation that you heard today, which I'm sure you are, please contact us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any social media, and we'll continue the conversation there. So till next time. <laughs>